Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. The kids are back in school, and that's a good thing because probably don't want any future airline leaders listening to anything that this guy has to say. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Well, when you were growing up, maybe you played with uh, video games or maybe some build toys like Kinects or Tinker Toys if you're that old or things like that. If you actually played with airline schedules and looked at Expedia for the next price change, then you could have grown up to be NPR's here and now transportation analyst, Seth Kaplan. <laughs> Pushing back from the gate. This is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk about why high-cost airports might be the right choice for low-cost long-haul airlines. Hmm. We'll discuss whether frequent flyer programs are evil. Hmm. And then we'll take a listener question and we'll read a real passenger complaint and decide whether the customer is really always right. That's in our finer wine segment. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Norwegian has announced that by this coming summer, all of its long-haul flying from America's San Francisco Bay Area will be at the main airport, San Francisco International. Back in 2014, when Norwegian first showed up in the Bay Area, it flew exclusively from the area's alternative airport, Oakland. Eventually, there were flights from Oakland, which once had no intercontinental service at all, to London, Paris, Barcelona, Oslo, Stockholm, Copenhagen, probably missing one or two. Later, Norwegian moved some of its operations to the main airport, SFO, but kept flying to Oakland. But by this summer, we'll be doing all of its flying from San Francisco. And at least as of now, according to DO by Sirium schedule data, there won't be a single seat flying on any airline between Oakland and Europe. In South Florida, by the way, Norwegian, which once flew exclusively from Fort Lauderdale, has been splitting its operations between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. We'll see what they end up doing there. Now, Ben, I want to get to the core of things. But first, splitting operations between two nearby airports when you don't have very many of uh, flights, that can be expensive, right? Well, of course, it may be more expensive, Seth. Um, if you have two flights coming into the same airport, you can cross-utilize crew for those two, probably don't need quite as many check-in positions and so on for two flights when you can do both from one, for example, versus if you're operating two separate airports, you're going to need check-in counters at both. You're going to need ground handlers at both. So there's clearly is more. Now, let's say, though, that if you don't have the space at one airport, or you don't have enough ground handling support at one airport, it may be more efficient to go to two different airports just because that's where you can. It's possible that Norwegian wanted originally to do all of its flying at San Francisco, but couldn't get the space. So it started at Oakland and then moved to San Francisco. I'm not saying that happened, but it could have happened that way. And certainly people who live in Oakland probably don't like the idea of calling San Francisco the main airport anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. And I want to get to that because, yeah, in the Bay Area, it just so happens Oakland is about as close to to parts of the middle of San Francisco as as SFO. Uh, But but the distinction here is important. We could spend the whole show, by the way, talking about the low cost 
low-cost long-haul business model in general and why low-cost flying has been so successful over the decades in short-haul markets and so unsuccessful in long-haul markets. Uh, Norwegian and others have really struggled at this game. But I want to focus right now on the airport choice because I think this is interesting. If you think of uh, sort of the quintessential short-haul airline, Southwest, right, a giant airline but with very short average flight distances – For many years, it served only Oakland. It's been at SFO for a while now, but remains a lot smaller there. Uh, It has never served Miami and said it never will in terms of what it costs an airline to serve Miami rather than Fort Lauderdale. Let's say the difference very roughly is something like, I don't know, maybe 12 bucks per departing passenger. Uh, And Southwest is indeed at Fort Lauderdale in a big way. So Ben, in the simplest terms of all, The question for any airline, if it is choosing one airport or the other, is whether the fare will be so much higher at a place like Miami than at Fort Lauderdale or at San Francisco compared to Oakland and so forth. And the answer can depend on the airline. But Ben, thinking just about low-cost airlines, uh, it seems like airport costs matter more for short-haul Whereas revenue or fares, this question of whether you're going to get the extra money for serving the more expensive airport, matter more for long haul. Am I right about that? And if so, why is that? Well, it's a very subtle point you're making, Seth, but a good one. It matters more for long haul because the difference in fare in long haul can be just greater. I mean, a 10% change on a $300 flight is bigger than a 10% change on a $60 flight, right? In terms of absolute dollars. And it's the revenue you're saying matters more on, on long haul. That's right. And so if you think about what airlines cost to operate. In the operation itself, the takeoff takes a lot because you need a lot of power to get that heavy piece of equipment and all the people off the ground. You need more control in the landing and that uses some. And plus, every time you smash on the runway, the landing gear take a little more that's going to need maintenance and everything. When the plane is flying at altitude, it's the most efficient it is. It has the least amount of drag because there's less air up there. The air is nice and cold, as my first flight instructor used to say. There's a lot of lifties in cold air, right? Yeah. The air is more, and so it's uh, the wing is more efficient. Everything's better, so it's using the least amount of fuel. So in the long haul flights, they have a lower unit cost of operation per mile because more of the flight is at that most efficient flight piece. And and and, and, and the airport costs matter less, right? Because the airport costs matter every time you take off or land. And if you are Norwegian taking off and landing with the long haul business maybe twice a day, then the differential at Miami or at San Francisco, you pay twice a day instead of, in in Southwest's case, five, six, or sometimes seven times a day that one of their airplanes takes off, right? That's exactly right. And even for an airline like Southwest or an airline like Norwegian, the percent of the costs that are from the airports is in absolute terms, relatively small as a percentage of the total cost. It's smaller for the long haul carrier because they're not there that often, right? They, right? They're not having as many operations. But airport costs run somewhere between 10 and 15% of an airline's cost structure, which is a lot, but it's not like the fuel or like the labor or like the cost of the airplane itself. And so often the choice of the airport comes down to where you can get the space and where the customers are going to be more likely to be attracted to more than the airport cost itself. Now, in your Miami-Fort Lauderdale case, that's a real interesting one because Miami is 
much more expensive to operate at than Fort Lauderdale. And that's why you see virtually all the low or lowish fare airlines operate at Fort Lauderdale. And really only Frontier is the only true low cost carrier that's decided to serve Miami. And uh, what I'm guessing Frontier has figured is as long as they're the lowest cost operator at the airport, they can still have a lower fare than other carriers at that airport. But I'm sure Frontier doesn't think they can operate more cheaply at Miami than Fort Lauderdale. But they think, hey, if I have that cost advantage versus everyone else, maybe I can still make it there. You don't have to outrun the bear as the old joke goes, right? <laughs> you just have to yeah, that's right. outrun American Airlines uh, from, from a uh, from a fair perspective. Uh, yeah, and and uh, the, the, then the revenue trade-off. So, you know, no question, it's, it's, it's cheaper to operate at Fort Lauderdale or at Oakland, uh, airports like those. No question, the difference matters more for a shorter haul airline because, as you said, they're there more often. But now, in terms of revenue, that's where a, a longer haul airline might take more of a penalty for the, the cheaper airport because, and part of it, Ben, it, it just comes down to a marketing thing where people who are closer, who are taking shorter flights to a, to a, to an area, are just more likely to know that the alternative airport isn't all that far away in, in many cases, right? And so when you are selling tickets in Europe and somebody wants to go to San Francisco or somebody wants to go to Miami, that person is more likely to say, uh, yeah, I want to go to San Francisco to to the airport that's called San Francisco. It doesn't even matter if the one in Oakland is about as close to a lot of places you might want to go. Or I want to go to the airport that's called Miami because I just don't know where these other airports are. So, so that's where it flips, right? Whereas, you know, if Southwest is flying from Tampa to, <laughs> to Fort Lauderdale. People who are in Tampa probably know uh, where, where the airport in Fort Lauderdale is located exactly in in relation to where they're going. And I remember somebody at Southwest telling me years ago, I mean, it's not even just intercontinental service, but like, you know, selling tickets even domestically. So the whole Oakland versus San Francisco thing, anybody living like west of Denver, generally has very little preference one over the other. You know, just kind of wherever the schedule's right or the fare is right. If they're going, like I said, to the middle of San Francisco, Oakland is nearly as well connected as the main airport. It might even be easier for some places. But once you get farther away, even within America, even once you're selling a ticket on the East Coast, people are less familiar with that dynamic. The Miami-Fort Lauderdale thing, same thing if you're selling tickets on the West Coast. So then once you're selling tickets around the world, it becomes an even bigger issue that trade-off doesn't it and it's pretty easy to imagine where that little bit of savings at Oakland or at Fort Lauderdale gets more than eaten up by the penalty that Norwegian might have been taking from people saying uh, we, no we want to fly to San Francisco or we want to fly to Miami that's a great analysis, Seth, and it's correct. Back in the 1990s, when I worked for Continental Airlines, Continental was building Newark Airport into what they called the, a global gateway, That's a great example. adding lots of service to Europe and so on. And one of the one of the directives that Gordon Bethune, as the very intelligent CEO of Continental put, is he insisted that there never be any pictures of Continental planes at Newark published that weren't from the perspective that showed Manhattan behind the airplanes. 
because you could, if you think about where you could take pictures at Newark, some could be facing New Jersey, some could be facing New York City. And he said, every time you see Newark with a Continental airplane, you want to see New York City. And he was so insistent that that be the case because it was that idea that we've got to convince the world that Newark Airport is New York City, not just close to New York City, but it's actually better than you know JFK or anywhere else you could fly. And uh, so that was a multi-year marketing campaign around making that. And I think the world now generally thinks of Newark. A lot of foreign airlines fly there, right? They think of Newark as New York, maybe because Newark sounds almost like New York. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, Oakland, San Francisco is a harder one. There's other examples too. I mean, in where we live, there's a reason that the airport closest to Baltimore calls itself Baltimore Washington International Airport because they want to be seen as an airport that can service the Washington metropolitan area, even though they're really quite far from most of the Washington metro area. Um, but they call themselves Baltimore Washington. On the other side of Florida, from Fort Lauderdale and Miami, when they built a new airport in Fort Myers, they called it Regional Southwest Airport because they wanted to think of it as serving this broad swath of area of yeah. Southwest Florida, not just Fort Myers. And so airports do a lot to try to market themselves so that the world understands where they are. There's one other thing that's really important. It's not only that a customer might know, but it's that the internet and the distributors know. I can tell you from my days at Spirit, when we started serving the Phoenix area, we flew to Mesa Airport. And one of the challenges that we had is at that time, if you went to Expedia and said you want to go to Phoenix, it would not show Mesa as an airport that served Phoenix. So we lost what we felt was a lot of revenue opportunity because unless you were looking for Mesa, you didn't see Mesa when you put in Phoenix. You only got Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. Eventually, Spirits moved its flights to Sky Harbor in part for that reason. And so knowing where an airport is is not just the consumer needs to know, but the distributors need to know so that when somebody searches and hasn't picked their airline yet and they say, I want to go to San Francisco, and they see a Norwegian flight, Norwegian would want to know that my flights to Oakland, if they were operating them, would show up when somebody searches for Sam. Ben, you know, as you were telling this story about Bethune, I promise I won't do this again, but but the, the book that, that I wrote with Jay Shabbat about Delta had this story that was so closely related to what you said. I flipped through it, I found this story, uh, and this just shows that it's not just sort of the average infrequent traveler who back in the day didn't understand how close Newark was. Gordon Bethune told me this story about when Air France was interested in inviting Continental into Sky Team at the time, into the Sky Team Alliance. But even the CEO of Air France had this this hesitancy about Newark. And, and here's the, the paragraph. It says, Air France, as it happened, had, had become increasingly convinced that inviting Continental to Sky Team was more than just a necessary evil to enable the Air France KLM merger way back then. And Bethune, when Air France's chairman, Jean-Charles Spinetta, flew to New York to learn more about Continental's increasingly global Newark hub, got off the Concorde, and, and Bethune says, we picked him up with a helicopter we had rented and flew him down Manhattan across Central Park, made a right turn and landed in Newark. And he was amazed we had built Newark as this huge international gateway and its proximity to Manhattan. He turns to his alliance guy, this is Bethune still talking, and says, we're going to do this deal. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so uh, 
Uh, and, and then the relations, you know, Delta had founded the Sky Team Alliance, but now Continental was joining it. So there you go. And and now I think people all around the world know that, but it but it takes time. And, and what, what a great job Bethune and, and the folks at Continental did building, as, as you said, as your colleagues there did uh, building Newark into into what it has become. No, fascinating uh, stuff, the whole airport choice uh, issue, including is some issues that are that are kind of psychological, right? The fact that Newark is located in New Jersey, even though it's, it's closer to a lot of Manhattan than, uh, than, than JFK Airport. Yeah, there's a reason that nobody reminds people that the Cincinnati airport's in actually in yeah, Kentucky. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yep. CVG stands for Covington County, <laughs> Kentucky. But, yeah. That's right. Well, Ben, we've talked in the past about the continuing debate about the airline industry's responsibility with respect to climate change, how much the industry contributes, what it should be doing about that, and so forth. Today, I want to focus on one specific part of that debate, something that seems to have bubbled up over the past oh, a year or so. Here's a piece in Vice last month with the headline, Your Frequent Flyer Status is Part of the Problem. The subhead uh, is, if you take six or more flights a year, you're part of an elite class of people whose behavior needs to change. That was not long after the UK's Committee on Climate Change proposed banning frequent flyer programs and, in fact, uh, doing the opposite. Instead of people who fly the most getting the most benefits, their flying would be taxed at a higher rate than other people's flying. The idea is that the amount of flying that most people do is no big deal from an environmental perspective, but a small percentage of people are causing a whole lot of carbon emissions. And that if there's going to be shared sacrifice when it comes to combating climate change, frequent flyers have to do their part. Ben, do they have a point? This is a tough one, Seth. You know, we have a multi-trillion dollar deficit in our country, right? And we can certainly talk about whether or not we should fund public radio as a part of the debate about how to solve the deficit. But we could stop all funding to public radio and we will still have a huge deficit problem, right? Doesn't mean that having the discussion doesn't make sense, but it doesn't really address the issue. And I think that that's the issue with with sort of putting the flashlight on frequent fire programs as a part of the problem for climate change. If climate change advocates, and I believe climate change exists, I've said that before on this podcast, I'm not a climate change denier in any way. (laughs) Uh, But the right answer would be fewer airline flights potentially, but frequent flyers are a very small percentage of the people who fly. One of the things that marketeers in the airline business scratch their heads with is how do I get more people in my frequent fire program? And how do I get a higher percentage sort of hooked on that drug, if you will? (laughs) And it's, uh, and it's, it's frustrating to, it's frustrating in that there just aren't that many people who fly that often. Now, the ones who do are very important to airlines. So they get over recognized in the programs and the, the perks and things like that. But if they say that the frequent travelers won't travel as much, does that really mean the total number of flights would drop all that much and the amount of carbon emissions would reduce? I think that's a real stretch, Seth. I don't think frequent fire programs on their own 
are sort of a cause of climate change, do they contribute in some small way, just like public radio contributes in a small way to the national debt? Yes. But is that the right thing to focus on to really affect climate change? I think that's uh, misguided. And and I think a key is what you mentioned about sort of, you know, is there going to be less flying or not? We have to recognize that, you know, generally, if if a flight is operating, it's going to burn about the same amount of fuel no matter what. I mean, people weigh something, but, you know, an empty plane burns – you know, well in excess of half the fuel is a completely full, uh, full, full plane. Right. L- last month, the Washington Post actually asked me uh, about mileage runs in particular. You and I have talked about this in past episodes, and I told them the story about the time I connected in Los Angeles on my way back from New York JFK to Fort Lauderdale in you know, 2003 or whatever it was to requalify for status with American. And the the so the tricky thing with that. So that sounds, of course. You know, very gluttonous, right? <laughs> from from a from a, a uh, from an emissions uh, standpoint, but uh, and 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 you know, candidly, I, I, I didn't even think about the about any of that when I was doing that, right? I was just trying to recall my first status. I didn't think about you know what's my what's my carbon footprint. But the thing about a mileage run is that almost by definition, that is a that, that that's a trip that was so marginal. Right. That's why I was able to, to, to get something where I flew so far for such a low fare, so marginal that that if, if I wasn't doing it, somebody else would have been sitting in that seat paying paying even less. Right. So uh, so it's not the same as getting in a car where, you know, if you don't drive that car, you really won't be emitting carbon at that time. It's all marginal. It's all incremental emissions uh, in the case of the. Of, of the, the mileage run as an extreme example of all of this, all of the emissions would have been exactly the same, even if, you, you know, if you try to calculate, okay, what's my share of emissions and all that, uh, you know, different ways people calculate it, it looks like a, a really inefficient way to get from, in that case, New York to, uh, to Florida. That's right, Seth. Obviously, you sitting on those seats to the West Coast and back so you could build your miles, that's not what created the carbon emissions from those flights. It was the fact that the airlines chose to fly those flights in the first place. Now, you'd have to be almost a conspiracy theorist to believe that there are so many people like you, gluttonous frequent flyer (laughs) people like you, um, that, uh, that the industry actually schedules flights to meet the demand of all these people who want to do all this marginal excess flying just to build their frequent flyer points. That's craziness, actually. And it's and it really sort of ignores the 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 facts that very few people actually fly like that. And the industry just can't afford to buy the capital and and run the operations to support all that kind of flying. They the industry buys expensive airplanes, puts expensive fuel in them, pays people a lot of money, pays airports a lot of money to fly flights that are going to make money for them, not people paying them just a low fare or getting a free ticket um, from a frequent flyer program or you know earned ticket that ends up being free to them on that flight, right? Um, and so. The idea of airlines contributing to climate change is a good one. The idea that frequent flyer programs make airlines fly more flights 
therefore you should stop that. I think that's a uh, a bridge too far. Yeah, that doesn't and, really and work. Clearly, look, uh, of course, the amount that airlines fly is related to consumer demand, right? We don't we don't mean to say that that all the flying that happens would happen even if nobody wanted to fly. Obviously, that's not the case. Uh, the question is specifically whether uh, the, the frequent flyer programs, you know, cause that. And I, and I get the argument that, uh, that that the more the way it is structured now, the more you fly, uh, you're basically getting rebated for doing that. Right. Because if you fly a lot and you're an elite member of a program, you're maybe not going to pay for your bag and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, but but you're right that clearly it is at least a small part of the problem. And, uh, and, the, and the mileage runs uh, just economically by definition are, are really not a part of the problem because the airlines don't want to sell those tickets if you're getting a a really far flight for almost nothing it's because that's a seat that, that nobody wanted uh and airlines obviously aren't scheduling things to to accommodate that because they would they, they would lose money if they were i guess united from that perspective although it wasn't doing it for this reason kind of closed the last loophole that incentivized purposely flying a far distance when it late last year announced that this year distance will no longer be any part of the formula in terms of qualifying for elite status. I mean, distance had already stopped mattering as much for the past several years, both with program miles and status qualifying miles. I mean, it's, it's mattered increasingly more how much you spend rather than how far you fly. But now on United, it, it just doesn't matter as part of any calculation at all how far you fly. So so I suppose um, anybody who is concerned about that issue would uh, would cheer United for doing that, even if from a selfish standpoint, maybe wish they could still uh, just fly around on really long trips without spending very much money <laughs> to, get up, to get upgraded a lot. Yes, and United made a good change there for their profitability. They may even, if they're a little bit snarky in their marketing group, they may even try to tell some groups, look, we made a very green friendly decision here as we're really closing the loophole to not allow all these frivolous flights to happen. But there is no way that that's the yeah. reason they made that <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of funny self-righteous <laughs> arguments out there, right? Uh, you know, the, the ultra low cost carriers. I think, you know, Wizz Air, uh, their CEO recently said business class should be banned, right? And, uh, and uh, you know, Lufthansa's CEO said, Flights for less than 10 euros should be banned, right? Each of them arguing that 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 the thing that they want banned is is a contributor to climate change. When, of course, the reality, too, is that was there would care if business class was banned because they don't offer it. And Lufthansa doesn't sell flights for less than 10 euros. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, easy arguments <laughs> to make. Well, now at Cruise Altitude here on Airlines Confidential, it's time to take a question and then a complaint that's during fine or wine. More Airlines Confidential is next. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next. But first, time to take a question from Yoni in Lawrence, Kansas. Yoni writes, Ben, what was it like working on Bob Crandall's Brat Pack. Do you have any memorable experiences working with Kirby and Parker that you would feel comfortable sharing? So first of all, just for background for anybody who, who doesn't get the reference, I mean, this is 
real inside baseball here, but I mean, okay, so so the the Rat Pack, of course, um, Sammy Davis Jr. and them, uh, the 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 Brat Pack in pop culture was that group of young actors in the 1980s who, uh, you know, the Breakfast Club and so forth, who, uh, you know, all went on to, in various degrees, do good things, and they ended up being called the Brat Pack. Uh, but in the airline industry, uh, Yoni's talking about that there was a group of people who worked at American Airlines when American was, in many ways, the most innovative airline in the world. Uh, Robert Crandall, Bob Crandall was the, was the CEO, and people who worked there went on to do great things in the industry, a kind of a lineage there, a coaching lineage, sort of like Bill Belichick uh, of, of the Patriots. Uh, you know, his disciples have gone on to do things around the NFL and other teams. Similar story at American Airlines uh, dating back really to the uh, the 80s. So, Ben, the question again, uh, any any memories from that? Uh, Yoni asked specifically with uh, Kirby and Parker, but uh, anything that, that uh, the people would find interesting from that era? Well, thanks for that question. Um, I did start my career at American Airlines in the mid-1980s, and later the Wall Street Journal published an article about me, Doug Parker, who was running America West at the time, Dave Cush, who was running – Virgin America at the time and Tom Horton, who was running American. And that's where they put that term brat pack on us. <laughs> but it, it was funny. You have to think about the time that was. The U.S. airline industry was deregulated for pricing and scheduling, meaning you know where you could fly and how much you could charge in late 1978. And I went to work in the industry in the mid-1980s, as did many other people. And American was an airline during that decade that recruited very aggressively from MBA schools and other graduate programs. And Bob Crandall was a financially oriented guy. So he expected the finance department to sort of vet major decisions around fleets, around flight schedules, around labor deals, around major marketing promotions, all kinds of things. So working in the finance department at American Airlines in the mid-1980s was a terrific environment for aggressive people who wanted to get involved in a whole bunch of things. And Crandall wanted his finance department involved in a bunch of things. So I worked with a lot of very smart people, many of whom went off to run airlines or be significant contributors to other airlines or broadly in the travel business. It was a great place to work. It was a very innovative and uh, high energy kind of environment. And clearly, after leaving American, I took with me many of the skills and disciplines that I learned under Bob Crandall at American in other things that I went to go do. So it was a great experience. Um, the The idea that that could be created again, I'm not sure, however. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Yoni did follow up uh, with, 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 with this question, where is the next Brat Pack breeding Delta, if so, what department? And I think, and he asked that to both of us. And I mean, my, my thought is that you, it, it's just always hard to say. I mean, Delta, they run a great airline, obviously, but that's one of those things you only know in retrospect, right? I mean, nobody knew in the 1980s that 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 those people were going to go on to do those things. So sure, it's possible decades from now, there are people whose names most people don't know right now, who who, who everybody says, oh, look, they all work together at, you know, wherever it is. But but I think, I think that's, difficult to identify while it's going on. I think there's also a certain 
I'm not, I'm not sure there's the same differential now in management quality among among airlines. Uh, you know, there are more and less successful airlines uh, even in the U.S. But I think if you go back to the 1980s, there were airlines that just were being run much less professionally than others. You know, in most cases, those those are are not around anymore. Uh, whereas, precisely because there's all this experience now, it's not that everybody's stupid back then, but it's that you know the industry had just been deregulated in 1978. You know, and everybody was really trying to figure it out. And I think uh, more than 40 years on now, it's it's you know there, there, there's just sort of certain common understanding of things that everybody's been able to implement at, at all of these airlines. That's exactly right, Seth. And there was also a lot of growth even among the big airlines then. The industry grew so much after deregulation because fares came way down. There were new airlines starting. So airlines were adding a lot of airplanes. That allowed an airline that was aggressive like American to recruit a lot of people. And there's no one airline uniquely today sort of hiring a lot of smart people that someday will go. I mean, it would almost be like, this is a very self-serving kind of analogy, and it's not good, but it would almost be like working at Microsoft very early or a company like that. It, they, the Microsoft today, I'm sure you can have a great experience working there, but it's not going to be the same as when the company was just founded. And in a way, working in American in the 80s, it's not like American was founded in the 80s, but just after deregulation, that was what the environment was like. Figuring out what are these frequent fire programs all about? What is hub and spoke networking about? What is yield management all about? And that in, that environment's kind of gone now. And innovation in this industry is found all over the place. Clearly, JetBlue was a very innovative airline. Spirit was a very innovative airline. Allegiance, a very innovative airline. Delta has shown lots of innovation, right? American isn't sort of the dominant source of innovation like it was in the 80s. Yeah. Any before we move on very quickly, any any anecdote that comes to mind from from the Robert Crandall from the Bob Crandall years, like just something that that uh, sort of, you know, from the inside that, that you look back on and think, yeah, that made an impression on me. Well, I'll tell you a story that always comes back to me very early in my time at American. So I was you know, just out of college and working in this as a financial analyst at this company. And Bob Crandall used to do what he called president's conferences, where at the beginning of the year, he'd go around the system and just talk to big groups of employees about the company. You know, very good communicative kind of strategy. Right. And in one of these I went to, I'd been in the company about six months in the middle of the talk, he uh he pointed to a guy in the front and said, this is, uh, I don't remember his name, so I'll say, this is Bob here. He runs our Oklahoma City airport. Bob, tell everyone how much you spent last month on rags in your city. And everybody laughed <laughs> around. And he made some number and he goes, I'm telling all of you out there, if you run an airport and you don't know how much you spend on rags, you don't know enough about your airport. Details. And, and that was incredibly I was incredibly impressed by that. Not that he just that he knew the name of the person who ran his Oklahoma City yeah. Airport. That in and of itself was impressive yeah. for a big company. But the fact that he was thinking about rags at the station and expected people to do that. And I clearly got that message that I needed to know my details and I needed to know what was going on. And I have found over my career that leaders who think like that and who are willing to get into details are just much more successful than those who try to just make broad general brushstrokes. It's a great lesson. Well, do you have a question for us? Uh, you can call us 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. That's 305-379-7429 or you could do what Yoni did. Email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Questions at airlinesconfidential.com. That's the second time we've taken a question from Yoni. I think the first time he called in, now we've got an email question from him. Or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. 
Uh, you'll see a form on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, this one is from Tom of Mays Landing, New Jersey. Tom says flight 943 from Atlantic City to Fort Myers was delayed because one flight attendant was an hour late. When he finally arrived after ruining the 100 plus passengers day, he arrogantly leisurely strolled past everyone who he, whom he inconvenienced. No apology, just another day at spirit. Yeah, so... <laughs> couple different things going on there i mean first you just have the delay and then you sort of have the attitude as 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 tom perceived it uh is is tom right is the complaint fine or is tom just whining ben i go with tom on this one i think that he's not whining at all i think he's right my sense from his letter or from his note is that had the flight attendant sort of made an apology even if they didn't put it on, even if he didn't put it on himself, like, you know, I'm sorry I was late, but we're sorry your flight was so delayed. We'll do all we can to make it up, you know, things like that. And just showed some sort of recognition of the inconvenience he had put the passengers on. My guess is Tom wouldn't have written this complaint because he clearly talks about he spends half the complaint talking about the arrogance, the leisurely yeah. strolling past, all that. And so I really believe, Seth, that the often the difference between what is perceived as a good airline and a marginal or even poor airline is not what happens when things go right, but what happens when things go wrong. And how they handle it. And, and how they yeah. handle it. And are they empathetic? Do they deal with situations well? And some airlines clearly do better than others at that. And in this case, um, this particular operation at Spirit on that day didn't meet that. And so I would say that the this is not a wine. I think it was not fine that the airline did this. There may be very explainable and even somewhat justifiable reasons why the flight attendant was late. It could be a scheduling issue. Maybe even one flight attendant called in sick and this flight attendant did a really good thing by coming in from home to fly sure, that sure. flight. But they got there, and so you don't even know that this particular flight attendant did anything wrong. They could have been the white knight in a sense in that in that case. But the fact that the customers perceived it as it was delayed for flight attendants and nobody even recognized it, that's where the rub is in this one. And that's why I say it's not a wine. Tom is fine for making this complaint. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, on final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember... Love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We'll talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.